Good evening, friends, fans, and colleagues uh, here in Southern California and across the globe. I'm your host, uh, Karen Tate, and I'm glad to be with you uh, this week, and I hope you are all uh, enjoying 2018 and it has started out well for you. Uh, I have to admit, it has started out great for me. Uh, I would say for most of 2017, I was angst-filled over my second Saturn return, but at one point during the holidays, I woke up and went, wow, it's gone, it's over. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not filled with angst about uh, what the second half of my life is going to be about. <laughs> so, uh, so 2018 has been uh, uh, has started off in a liberated fashion. And uh, bringing our attention to tonight's show, I am so pleased uh, to have uh, Dr. Dennis Patrick Flattery with me. Uh, he uh, is going to be talking about a great topic. Um, Kurt Anderson put out a book titled Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-Year History, uh, and it's put out by Random House just last year. And I am so thrilled uh, that uh, Dr. Uh, Slattery uh, will be uh, filling us in on this book because if you're like me, uh, that is the question you have been asking yourself for quite some time. Uh, I know I've certainly been scratching my head as I go, uh, what has happened in this country? Am I the only one uh, that feels like things have really, really gone awry? And what's the cause for it? You know, is this a new phenomena? Is, or is it in our history? Are we predisposed uh, to this uh, kind of uh, magical fantasy thinking? And uh, you might actually be surprised. I thought this was a relatively new development, but apparently it is not. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about our guest uh, because he is such an accomplished fellow, uh, and then we will start this interesting chat. Uh, Dennis Patrick Slattery, Ph.D., uh, he has been teaching for 45 years, uh, the last 23 in the Mythological Studies Program at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Carpinteria, California. He is the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of 24, yes, I said 24 volumes, including six volumes of poetry, and here are some of the titles. Casting the Shadows, uh, Selected Poems, uh, Just Below the Waterline, uh, Selected Poems, Twisted Sky, uh, The Beauty Between Words uh, with uh, Chris Paris, Feathered Ladder, uh, The Road, uh, let's see, and Road Frame Window, uh, a poetic uh, of seeing. Um, he's co-authored one novel, Simon's Crossing, with Charles Asher. Uh, he had some other poetry books. Uh, also, other titles include uh, The Idiot, uh, Dostoevsky's, I probably murdered that, uh, Fantastic Prince, uh, a, a phenomenological, uh, 
okay, he's you're, he's killing me here. Uh, a phenomenological approach, the wounded body, uh, remembering the markings of flesh. Uh, with Lionel Corbett, he's co-edited and contributed to Psychology at the Threshold and Depth Psychology, Meditations in the Field. I could go on and on. Uh, he also has uh, contributed to varieties of mythic experience, uh, essays on religion, uh, psyche and cultural limbo of shards, um, yes, uh, this is a very thoughtful guy and well-written, too, and I'm so thrilled to have him uh, here on the show. He's also authored over 200 essays, uh, done lots of reviews in books, magazines, newspapers, uh, and he offers writing retreats in the United States and Europe on exploring one's personal myth through the work of Joseph Campbell and other mythologists. Uh, after we chat, you might want to go look him up. Uh, his website is his name, uh, DennisPSlattery.com uh, at Pacifica.edu or DSSlattery at Pacifica.edu. Uh, so let me say uh, welcome, Dennis, to the show, and I'm sorry for uh, murdering the, the titles of some of your books no. there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's absolutely uh, fine. You did a great job. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. So um, let me start by asking you, um, what uh, what got you interested in uh, Kurt Anderson's um, work? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I love the Atlantic magazine. I love Harper's, and I love the New Yorker. And so um, – I think I took my, uh, at that time, recent copy of The Atlantic to with me to the dentist's office, keep my mind off of uh, what was coming. And I began reading uh, a fairly substantial excerpt from the Fantasyland book. And I thought, oh, this is, this is too good. I have to get further along. So I credit The Atlantic um, for putting me in touch with his uh, his book, which is 462 pages, and uh, Karen, it helped me immensely in understanding terms like fake news, al- alternate truths, alternative facts, real or fictional conspiracy theory. In fact, I was watching the news tonight and the uh, conspiracy theorists are out in, like gangbusters. So this this is part of our heritage, as you rightly said. And it helped me understand how Donald Trump is a consequence and not a cause of um, what has upset um, many Americans uh, with what is uh, – what is dismissed as, uh, well, this is an unconventional uh, president. Now, I don't think he understands it, to be quite honest with you and your uh, listeners, uh, how much he's a historical figure. When I began to read uh, Kurt Anderson's book, I found it fascinating uh, with that sub-subtitle of 500-year history, because he takes us back to Martin Luther, who launched Protestantism in 1517 when he hammered the 96 Theses on the uh, door of the cathedral. 
and in essence uh, ushered in a new Christianity. Here's one of the lines, and I'm, as I mentioned to you when you and I were chatting for a couple of minutes, you know, I've got a number of pages of notes as well as a, um, a, a book review that is being considered by the Jung Journal in uh, San Francisco. But so, so, to, so before yes. you so before you start that though, um, let me just yes. backtrack slightly. Uh, when you said he doesn't know what a historical uh, uh, character he is, were you referring to Donald to the Donald? Yes. Yes. Okay. Think, and and I, how many I, years? I, go go ahead. Well, I think he doesn't understand that he's a historical character, but I do think he's catching on that he's a hysterical character. And uh, (laughs) uh, hysterical in the sense of histrionics is the entertainment game and the, um, and the uh, uh, quiz show uh, is the presidency in the white house. That I think he understands, but I, I don't think he understands the deeper history that comprises the psyche of America. Right. Well, and I, I was reading a vari- uh, uh, an article in Variety today about uh, Donald and um, his character and just the nature of the man he is, uh, and it was all re- really pretty scary. And um, I, I guess I, you know, one of the things they said about him was he is not a curious person, and he's not really interested in reading books, and he's not really interested in history. Uh, so, you know, he's probably not even aware of the concept that, you know, history can repeat itself. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's important yes. to be humble uh, and, and cautious especially when you're dealing with, you know, people with nuclear weapons and things like that. I, I, I think yes. my, impression, my impression is he's really not a, a, a very aware man, you know. Uh, no. uh, it, it, would, it would really be interesting to know where his IQ is, uh, you know, compared to, um, you know, a, a lot of other presidents, because I, I kind of get the feeling most of us wouldn't hire him uh, to, uh, I, I don't know, do, do the most menial chore for us. You know, um, yeah. you know, he, he just, just doesn't, he seems like all he is is a big bag of wind. Um, but, but you refer yes. to Martin Luther. Um, so, so is what you're saying part of the American psyche tracks back to Martin Luther? And if yes, what it, what's the date we're talking about? Yes, so 1517 is when Luther comes forward as a Catholic to uh, suggest um, in protest to clergy, this is what Anderson's argument is, that um, people, you should not feel obligated to sit in church and have the interpretation of the Bible uh, related to you, relayed to you, um, but you have the right to uh, interpret that book for yourself, so start doing it. And his understanding was that every Protestant is, is his or her own priest. This, Anderson says, the inflection towards the individual over the larger cultural and over the larger historical 
is the um, more, I don't want to say advantageous, but more correct, fulfilling way to live. From that thread, um, Anderson takes us up into the reality TV shows of this century. And it's an absolutely magnificent, nuanced study. And I, I said to my wife, you know, this book could be used in a sociology course, in a mythology course, in a political course, in a theology course. Um, Anderson's epic range is, is um, startling in, his, in the homework that he did. Okay, um, so so going back to you know so that we so that we start on the same page here, this idea from Martin Luther that we could interpret the Bible ourselves um, that starts us uh, maybe thinking that we don't have to listen to intellectuals. In other words, um, but I wonder if. It was, and, and I don't know, I'm sincerely asking, yes. did he c- yes. come to this idea because um, maybe he felt that some of the so-called teachers of the time were biased and people were not getting an unbiased point of view? Um, I mean, was he well-intentioned? Yes, I think what you just suggested is true. <clears throat> he also felt that the church in its rather dogmatic stance, was really co-opting the freedom of individuals by turning faith into dogmatic assertions and suggesting there's no other right answer to this passage in the Hebrew Bible or this passage in the New Testament. And so Mm -hmm. part of Luther's protest was raising the level of consciousness of people so that they could begin to see themselves as individuals, free agents, capable of coming to their own sense of what a particular religious passage was um, about, what, what, was there, what was its connotations, and what was its denotations. And so I think uh, Luther performed a... Um, a radical um, move towards independence, the problem is that it went overboard. Um, as, I, as I wrote at the beginning of my uh, review, we all move between the rational and the irrational. That's a given. But going overboard so to conflate fantasy with objective reality is the crisis. And Luther, right. in Anderson's vision, began promoting that in the beginnings of the 16th century. And I would, and I would imagine that connection. And 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 that that's that's a very interesting point. That and it's a and it sounds like it's a good place to start, uh, because you know we all yes. want to, you know we we don't want to be sheeple. You know we don't want. I mean we talk about that here on the show all the time. The last thing we want is the church or any authority dictating to us everything we think. 
but the but I guess yes. I, I know what we we see out there in the world is um, uh, the lack of people being able to use critical thinking to discern. That's right. Um, That's right. What's crazy um, from what's probable. Um, and then you have self, you know, people who are self-serving, I think, um, out there even maybe promoting stuff that they know uh, is divisive or wrong because it somehow benefits them. Um, like, yes. um, you know, the oil companies saying climate change is not real, for instance. Yes, Exactly. And, and, you know, and then um, you have a Fox yes. News, you know, then you have a Fox News or you have a corporate media that really doesn't want to deal in facts. They want to deal in promoting their agenda. So you end up with a population that can't tell fantasy from reality. Exactly right. Um, here is the um, Jewish writer Hannah Arendt. 1951, and this is the first of her three-volume work, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And I'd like to share this quote with your listeners. She writes in 1951, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom, and this is off what you just said, Fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, that is, the standards of thought, no longer exist. End of quote. Mm. That for her is one of the originating impulses to a totalitarian state. Yeah. Well, let and, uh, me ask. Yeah, let me ask you this. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Um, uh, because you wouldn't think that, but it, but when you hear it, though, it it does make absolute sense. But you know, what question comes to mind, Dennis? Because I have to admit, mm. I think I am a. Dis- I think I am someone who tries very hard to use critical thinking and not be duped and tries to use discernment. But there are things that um, I'm probably what somebody would call a conspiracy theorist about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I wonder, um, let's see, how do I language this? What I wonder is when we have things like, say, the Kennedy assassination, or maybe yes. 9-11, Let, let's just use those, and we really yes. don't know what happened, don't you think those sorts of events promote this idea that we don't really know who to believe um, about what's true? And, and maybe those things also um, feed into this fantasy thinking. Yes, and I mean, how you were phrasing that is exactly, we don't know for certain, but the, and I love uh, Anderson's term, the continued creation of the fantasy industrial complex then leads certain individuals to say, 
oh, I know there were three individuals, not just uh, one, in the assassination of Kennedy. And that term, I know, they don't know. But this is where America goes haywire, that certain propositions that are not based on any facts but more hunches becomes the ruling reality of the day and that's what's that's what totalitarianism begins to look like okay, but the discerning person that. over something like the uh the uh, world trade center the kennedy in fact just a, a sidebar anderson thinks that the kennedy assassination brought conspiracy theory front and center in the american psyche Mm-hmm. And the, the, what grew up were all of these other alternate truths, the term we hear today, or alternate set of facts, but they're based on no tethering uh, to reality. That's their danger. If they're being promoted to a non-discerning public who has not learned how to parse what they read and what they hear. And so they are often um, manipulated by feelings. Right. And thought doesn't enter the picture. Okay. And this is a large theme of Anderson's. If it feels right and no one can show me that it is untrue, then I am completely free to believe it. So, Karen, I think there's a subtle slippage (laughs) in the case of some who (laughs) conflate thought with feeling. And where they think they're thinking is, 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 in fact, their feelings. Right, right. No, so, so you please. So, so maybe what you're saying, and feel look, feel free to correct me at any point if I'm not getting it right. Um, mm-hmm. So, someone who's suspicious or skeptical of let's just, you know, keep it on 9/11 or the Kennedy assassination. Yes. Uh, some fine. someone can be skeptical. Somebody can be skeptical, but um, and and the maybe the healthy thing, the prudent thing is to say, you know, I'm not sure I buy the government's line about what happened, but I but I but I realize I can't be certain about what happened. That's different than yes. um than the the fantasy thinking. Yes. And you know, you you make me remember one of the most full-blown versions of that, which you just said, came home to Sandy and me in watching uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's 10-part Vietnam uh, War series, where there was a uh, committed and conscious intention to sell a particular version of a war 
that grew less and less connected with the reality that was taking place uh, primarily in South Vietnam, but uh, and also in Cambodia. I mean that that fantasy thinking for ulterior motives. I mean I think that's the that series uh, convinced me of how powerful uh, a myth can be because what was taking place is mythologizing a war along one narrative line and in the process drifting farther and farther away from what was taking place on the ground. So I would add, well, I would add it, that to the Kennedy. Well, and I mean, having just seen the post and and uh, to be yes. honest with you I, I i was a little bit too young during the pentagon papers scandal um and i didn't know all, that whole thing you know uh, yes. exactly how everything happened but it, it's yes. fresh in my mind cuz i saw the post you know this idea that the government knew for years that the vietnam war was unwinnable but they wanted to save face um you know and this comes out through, you know, through the Pentagon Papers. Um, yes. You know, I, I guess I, I guess I feel like we have been let down so many times by the media, by the government. Um, is there any wonder that nobody trusts anybody anymore, and nobody really knows yes. who to believe about a whole lot of stuff? Yes, and. That, I also believe, is engineered, just exactly what you said. And may I, uh, Karen, uh, tell your audience the title of a book that some of them might be interested in reading on just this point that we're on? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, please. Yeah. His name is Henry Giroux, G-I-R-O-U-X. And I think the subtitle and the title are both equally powerful. The title is The Violence of Organized Forgetting. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is Thinking Beyond America's Disimagination Machine. Let me repeat it. The, The title is The Violence of Organized Forgetting. And the subtitle is Thinking Beyond America's Disimagination Machine. And uh, Henry Giroux is an educator and a Canadian and a cultural critic. And I have found his book, which I'm about 40 pages from finishing, so helpful because at the end of it, he is calling for a radical imagination. I agree with you that critical thinking is key, but uh, nine, you know the 9/11 report had as one of its main insights that 9/11 was a failure of the imagination itself. We couldn't imagine the bits and pieces of information that was available. We couldn't imagine it into a whole, and so 9/11 happened. With the with critical thinking, 
should be it should be coupled with a radical imagination in which for example Giraud says the 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 school should be the center of a democracy not the military industrial complex so he's asking us to shift our imaginations to really those impulses and values that we truly believe in but we're having ourselves we are being asked and even engineered to forget them so that's a, a book that would be for any of your listeners a beautiful um, companion to Anderson's book okay okay so I, uh, when I when I when I listen to a news story, even when I listen to an ad, I ask myself one simple question: What is this news story, or what is this person, or what is this ad asking me to forget? And when I pose that question on any of those fronts, it became it becomes pretty quickly obvious what I'm supposed to not remember. And when I don't remember it, then the persuasive power of what it is that's being presented to me grows exponentially. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, but, but, you know, there's also the, the idea that, well, I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think how one might... Um, apply that uh, and you know maybe you don't know what they're trying to get you to uh, forget (laughs) not always you're exactly right you're exactly right but that it is an engineered message it's a it's a crafted message with an intention or maybe several intentions and we want to trust that the intentions are, you know, benevolent. They're, they're, they're beneficial. But we can't anymore. And that's, you know, it's what led to the three-day shutdown. And I was listening to one of our favorite, Sandy, my favorite uh, uh, presenters or show, has her own show, is Rachel Maddow. And she said she can't get anybody to say with any definitiveness why the shutdown took place. It's almost like it happened on its own. Well, I think it happened, I think it happened because of the lack of trust, as you brought up uh, earlier. And that's the well, danger um, of leadership without trusting. Well, you mean the, neither side trusting the other? Exactly. Well, I, I mean, that... That makes sense to to a point, but at least with the shutdown, it seemed like it was just the two sides were so far apart that um, uh, you know, and, the, and maybe the Democrats have felt that uh, you know uh, the DACA thing was a line in the sand that you know they couldn't possibly uh, erase so to speak, and the wall is such a, um, a waste of money, um, you know, maybe, I, I, I don't know, You look, I, I'm not happy with the Democrats these days either, but to give yeah, in, 
you know, to to give in um, it would would seem. Um, uh, you know, it, I mean, look, we always, well, not we always, but so many of us say, look, the Democrats bring a covered dish to a gunfight. You know, it used to be a knife to a gun <laughs> gunfight. Now it's a covered dish to a gunfight. You know, I mean, it, 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 and it's like they, 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 they give in and give in and give in and they get beat up so bad by the Republicans. It's like they're not even, in, you know, in the same league um, in the fight, you know, it's like a heavyweight against yes. the lightweight. It seems like all the time yes. we get steamrolled, um, and and with the right getting crazier and crazier, um, I don't know. I, I think it must be awfully hard to come to find middle ground if one side gets, you know, uh, more and more extreme or ridiculous or 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 facts don't matter. You know, how do you yes. compromise with a, with a with a group that facts don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and you're pointing out something I think very important. There's not just one answer to why things happen. Now, yeah. conspiracy theory says, Oh yes, there is one way to see this. And it's the way that I'm going to tell you right now. But to say, you know what, there's paradox here. There's ambiguity here. There's some value on each side here. Now, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the resilient piece that could allow both to truly be heard by the other? And I think that's trust. And along with trust is a certain courtesy to the ideas that are in opposition to your own thinking. And that's yeah. where the adults should be present and not the adolescents. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. And, and you know, when there used to be, it seems like, you know, for all the the imperfection, it used to be, it seemed like in, in, in uh, the Senate maybe at least, uh, sort of gen- the gentleman's agreement, if you will, you know, um, yes. you know that that there was there was some respect, some uh, cooperation, and now it it just seems like it's uh, I don't know. I, 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 the analogy that comes to mind is it's like a bar fight, you know, it's it's just survival yes. of the fittest, as opposed to statesmen. You know, statesmen who are intelligent, thoughtful human beings putting their minds together for what's best for the country, that concept has just sort of gone out the window a long time ago. It's deteriorated so badly. Yes. Um, But but I think you're you're right, though. I mean, the more it, it does come down to trust then. Yes, and to pull a a, a little bit of Kurt Anderson uh, in at this moment, as he tracks this idea um, through our founding and then into the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, um, he says that the impulse grows and grows uh, more strong that your belief, I'm now I'm citing him. Your belief about anything is equally as true as someone else's. And for 
for Anderson, the individual is turned into an individual's thinking is turned into rampant solipsism. That's where things calcify and become arthritic in my mind. It's one right. thing to say, okay, you've got your opinion, but I don't quite agree with it because I want you to hear my opinion. Okay, now there's a chance at least for a conversation. But as right. soon as one side becomes solipsistic and can't even hear the other, then a shutdown on all kinds of levels, including the one we right. just suffered, uh, becomes more than uh, plausible. And it becomes probable. Um, yep. Okay, let's do this. Um, I need to take I need to take a little break here, uh, okay. and we're going to have a word from uh, one of the one of the sponsors of the show, Joe Carson, and uh, mm-hmm. we're going to come back. Um, Kurt, uh, we're going to come back, um, Dennis, and talk. We, you know, we kind of jumped into the middle. You know, or jumped into the end result, uh, but I want to yes. kind of go back uh, into America's history because I think listeners will be surprised to know how far back this goes. Um, so we'll exactly. we'll go back to the I guess the Pilgrims maybe um, uh, right after this commercial. So uh, just okay. just one second. Here we go. Okay. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you uh, were just listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. And these spiritual sites that range from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. Okay, so uh, getting back to uh, Dennis uh, Slattery, he's with us tonight, and we're talking about uh, Kurt Anderson's uh, book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Um, Dennis is just about to tell us that um, we have been predisposed to this sort of thing from the very beginning, right? Yes, and... um Part of, part of Anderson's um, argument is that when those oppressed people in England 
came to uh, America, they had with them the fantasy that they could separate themselves from history. Here's a new land. Of course, the Native Americans were there, but that wasn't in their uh, sights. Here was a chance to create a nation out of whole cloth without the fetters or the tethering of history. So the, the idea was this is a land without limits. This is the land of milk and honey. This is the land in which we can fabricate a reality without any resistance from our past or much less history itself. So that was the vision that was carried. And then so many of the uh, preachers, Jonathan Edwards and John Whitfield, and he just names a, a bevy of them, promote the idea anyone could become a preacher and preach anywhere. Each person has the right to a private, personal relationship with Christ. You don't, again, this is part of Luther's um, um, legacy. Each professes the truth from their own idiosyncratic version, which leads, and I know I'm taking a large leap, but we're back here at the origin of the, of the uh, nation, leads to an anything-goes imagination. Now, that can be a huge plus, so that one is seeing the world with fresh eyes, but my own thinking is that every myth must be embedded in history and every sense of history we carry must be understood as the expression of a myth or perhaps many myths. That, I think, can get split with the idea. And, you know, uh, advertising... Uh, well, it, it was a more powerful number of years ago, but it was the idea that, uh, in fact, um, the city of Dallas was the one that promoted it. Dallas, a city without limits. See, this notion that there's no boundaries and that right. we, can, we can manufacture ourselves, our nation, uh, our values, um, uh, almost ex nihilo, almost out of uh, nothing is part of the fantasy industrial complex's origins. And then, okay, then so he, but, let, but, yes, let me, but let me ask you, though, Dennis, because I'm a little bit – let me just play devil's advocate for a minute, okay? I'm, sure. I'm, the, I'm, I'm the pilgrims. Uh, you know, I'm leaving this, you know, horrible England because they haven't let me practice my religion the way I want to practice my religion. And yes. I'm going to come to this new land where there's nobody there to stop me from doing what I'm doing. It's a blank slate. What's yes. wrong with thinking that um, that they could create, a, you know, that they could draw the canvas, you know, that they could make it anything they wanted to make it provided everybody was on the same page? Yes. It, meaning think, they were all the same yes. religion, you know? Yes. I think the uh, trap is naivete, that one can step out of history. And that was the fantasy that they carried. 
I don't think we can so step out of what does that mean exactly? Or, or what does that mean exactly? They step out of history. The notion that there were were completely untethered from the past. Now, on some level, that's true, but the idea that one is not part of a historical continuum is the okay. trap. Is the danger of naivete. Okay. That, um, I, I can be an ahistorical human being. And this is part of the world we're in today that technology has promoted. If, okay. I, if I were able to give the uh, audience another title, I would say we all should be going, we, we all should return and read Huxley's Brave New World. Because that is the world of distractions. And Huxley in 1931 kind of nailed where we are right now and the patron saint of brave new world is henry ford and the mantra that henry ford historically put in the world is history is bunk don't look back we look forward only the past is dead the past is gone that's a very dangerous totalitarian idea and it was bought and today there is a strong, and of course the way that history has been taught has just been deplorable. I mean, it would make yeah. us all snore with the facts, and as if that is, if, as if that's history, uh, rather than teaching it as a narrative, and then how one's own narrative fits into that to make it, to make it relational. I think I want to say. Well, and, so, and, and yes, look, and maybe, maybe this is a, sep- a separate subject, uh, but it, it feels like it kind of fits in. You know, I mean, we, we're all we're, we all seem to be bombarded with um, how do I say? You know, the 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 people who have power over us want us want to control us. They only want us to know what they want us to know. And I think when I think when I yes. say that I'm thinking in terms of all the things that we never find out about. You know, if you uh, and, and here my you know probably my feminism is going to come in. But you know, if That's you're right. a white yes. Christian, if 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 you're a white Christian man, then um, you hear all about the 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 wonderful things that white christian men have done but like for instance with the yes. uh the the history books you know they don't want to put thomas jefferson in the history books they don't want to put the um the accomplishments of uh, people of color in the history books um we That's don't right. hear uh, we didn't hear about goddess spirituality growing up you know uh, uh yes. we we don't we don't admit that there were egalitarian societies or that a goddess was worshipped 30,000 years ago. Um, A a friend of mine just sent me, you know, we're on this kick about what we don't know, and it makes us mad, the things (laughs) we don't know. Like like there was this Mexican fella who saved over 40,000 um, Jews during the Holocaust, but nobody found out about him because he was a brown-skinned guy, you know? Yep. Um, yep. It, it, and so so I think it tends to, again, I guess we're back to not trusting authority because authority, you know, the conquerors want to write history, you know, or you think of like Howard yes. Zinn's um, history of the United States. Um, mm mm-hmm. 
you, you know, it, I guess it, it's hard to um, reconcile all of this and not yes. lose faith in institution, you know, uh, because yes. it feels like everywhere you look, you are being duped. You know, whether it's the big pharma who's selling you drugs that are going to kill you because it makes them money, or the military-industrial complex who's, who's uh, you know, beating the drum to lead the United States to a war with a country that didn't even have anything to do with 9-11. You know, it's like, where in the heck can we look today with certainty and confidence and I think we all feel like we're drowning in a sea of lies. Yeah, it can get very um, dispiriting and discouraging. And I don't have any solution except that I would say um, many people aren't reading anymore. They're getting all their data from news outlets, and I think that's a form of incarceration on a major order, reading mm-hmm. widely, reading varied opinions, historical, sociological, whatever. So you, you see that there are many converging and diverging points of view. Now you have a matrix uh, from which to choose. But I think that the act of reading, the thoughtfulness that reading deeply and, and intelligently is a way of imagining the world that, the, 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 for me, the electronic outlets uh, don't give us. There's something about the written word that has a power that is being lost. Well, and, and there's so much competition for our attention, too. Um, yes. You know, even even if you are a reader, and I feel like fewer and fewer people are, um, as somebody told me recently that only 5% of people buy books anymore uh, because oh as an God. author, we were, you know, we were lamenting, you know, poor book sales. And I learned that it, she yes. either said 5 or 15, but it was very low. And that amazed yes. me, you know. But when you yes. look, you know, we're all so visual now. You know, even on Facebook, you know, if the if the yes. if you if you if you send something on Facebook and it doesn't have a picture with it, the likelihood anybody's <laughs> even going to look at it is probably you know ten percent. It's got to have yes. a picture with those words, or nobody's even going to yes. read that sentence. <laughs> yes. um, no, I, I agree. And my um, my own so, my own you know. Well, no, I was just saying. I wonder if you know people's. Well, well, well. There, people have a short attention span. I think they're they're becoming visual rather. You know, for pictures. I think rather than reading long, lengthy. You know, their attention span is short. I mean, like yes. you have to catch. You know, maybe you can get them to watch a one or a two minute video, but if it's more <laughs> yes. than that, well, good luck. Um, yeah. and, and I will. And and I don't know. I guess sometimes I wonder, um, uh, you know. And with and and you add to that the fact that you know people are struggling maybe with two jobs, three jobs, just to keep their head above water. You know, it it yes. feels like this perf- perfect storm 
uh, for devastation, for destruction, or is it a strategy? You know, is it that destruction? Yes. Well, it's not accidental that in the last, oh, I'm going to kind of guess here, six years, seven years, the attacks on liberal arts degrees, humanities degrees, and it mostly comes from the Republican quarter, whose idea is if reading Moby Dick doesn't move you towards a better paying job, why the heck would you want to waste your time reading it? This ferocious reductionism where learning is um, trivialized into training. And I... Now, now, this is a little bit of my conspiracy <laughs> theory coming out, that the, the, the idea that a democracy survives, much less flourishes, is only possible with a discerning citizenry, not, um, not consumers or not uh, constituents, those, but citizens. And right. To, to work the brave new world of Huxley into a finer, polished machine, you cannot afford to have thinking people questioning, challenging, which is what gives the lifeblood to a democracy, but not to a totalitarian right. state. So, right. yeah, that's, so that's a little of my conspiracy, although it's not so much a conspiracy because I have read and I've heard um, in fact, there was a governor of one state, and I'm going to forget it, I, I already have forgotten it, but who had uh, made the decision to charge higher tuition to those students who pursued a degree in art, philosophy, English, um, humanities-based, because this was his way of punishing and correcting them for wasting their time, money, and education on those non-training vocational um, degrees. So uh, it's dire. And and the Chronicle of Higher Education, which I read regularly, um, you know, has been uh, monitoring this series of attacks uh, for years and years. Well, and I mean, and we know the first thing that's always cut in a school budget is art and music, and yep. Uh, yep. you know, it, I mean, it's like it, it, it's it makes me think of the Borg on Star Trek. You know, it would really, uh-huh. you know, be yes. be nice if we all just became the Borg. And we didn't give them any trouble <laughs> thinking, challenging right. them. We we were just good little consumers and spent all of our money buying their crap, and you know that would you know keep all the corporations happy and to hell yes. with our quality of life and you know and, and our ability to be to be thinking, um, in, inspired, creative human beings. You know we're just cogs in a wheel. You know how dare us you know, want something yes. more. Yes. Uh, you know, you point out something very important there, Karen. The subtle shift from quality to quantity and with the loss of quality in anything, 
in the way one speaks or the way one washes his car, it doesn't matter. But that qualitative element is sacrificed in the face of quantity, which has to do with measurement, quantification, but the imagination is lost in the shuffle. I know we're going to run out of time, so can I share with you and your audience one of the great insights in Anderson's book towards the end when he's speaking sure. about... And, and yeah. I, and I, yes. and I do have the flexibility to go a little bit longer if you want to go a little bit longer. Um, so it's okay. not, it's not like we're, we're clicked off at seven o'clock. We can take it to seven thirty if you like. Okay. Or we'll split the difference maybe between, uh, seven and, uh, let's see, it's nine o'clock my time. Yeah. Between seven and, uh, nine and nine thirty, seven and seven thirty. Uh, okay. But here's, okay. What it, here, here's what Anderson says in developing the last chapter is on uh, Trump and the White House, where Fantasyland, he says, comes to the White House. So here are the three pieces fake realities will create fake humans, fake humans will generate fake realities and then sell them to others over time and over time humans will eventually become forgeries of themselves i just think that's brilliant well you know what it reminds me of and i mean i think that's happening already um probably even before trump trump i think just um uh, you, you know, it, 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 Trump just makes it bigger and louder. You know, it uh, accentuates yes, that's it. Right. Um, yes. But it reminds me. I, I was reading the German uh, German philosopher Eric Fromm, who wrote uh, the oh, book, yes. uh, you know, to have or to be. And he talked yes. about the fact that that we are bombarded with advertisement from the moment we are conscious. And he wondered if we even knew who we were. Do we know? Do yes. we really know what we want? Do we really know what we like? Uh, because yes. we have advertising telling us what to think, you know, um, about everything and what to yes. like and who we are, or, or we're constantly selling a version of ourselves to an employer. Yes. Uh, it, it's like we lose the our authentic self, yes. you know. And and do do we even know who that is? That's right. And you know the irony in what you just said, Karen, is that that not knowing um, who one's authentic self is is um, perpetrated by the mania for individualism, for individuality. So the paradox is that the very, the very sales pitch towards individuality can, it doesn't have to, it's not a cause and effect, can create a complete alienation from one's authentic self. Hmm. It, it is for me almost like how... Um, freedom, true freedom, existential freedom, has been sacrificed to choice. So you in the supermarket, you go down the cereal aisle, 
there's 140 different brands. Choice then starts looking like freedom, but it's been a sleight of hand because the freedom has been uh, extracted and choice has been put into its place. Um, what were you saying about your friend? You and your friend were talking about, oh, not getting the right story. What, what did you say just a little while ago? Um, um, you, you, oh, I've, or, uh, what is fake or what is, what, I forgot what now. Is, uh, okay, I did too. But the, the, so one of I was going to use that as a, a, an analogy for me in looking at culture. As things come up, I'm asking myself, okay, what is this substituting for? What's the price tag for this new idea, this new product, this new way of speaking? Um, because I think this substituting one thing for another is going on all the time. And I think that's engineered. I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's manufactured. So, well, you know, well, you know, Fromm also yeah. said, you know, talking about this idea of freedom, um, he, you know, it, 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 he, it sort of boiled down to we think we're free, but we really aren't because most people are e- we either fall into two categories. We either fall into the category of we are part of the power structure, and it is our job to make other people conform, or we are. Uh, trying to conform, and yes. neither one of those people, neither one of those people, are really free. And uh, but that's but but that's where most people are comfortable in one or the other of those two categories, and we sort that's of right. delude ourselves to think that we're really free. Yep. Yeah, this is one of Dostoevsky's uh, great themes through his novels. What is it to be truly free? Because there's a fantasy notion that I think the West has carried that freedom means a, um, a situation without boundaries. Well, that's a form of enslavement. The, the paradox for me is that the boundaries promote freedom. They don't, they don't take it away. So this notion of no limits is also part of the American uh, psyche and this is what Anderson is tracking I mean he's tracking a hundred different uh, themes but the the idea that you are truly free when you believe whatever it is that works for you and I think it's a form of um, self-incarceration well and selfishness too in a way right I mean wouldn't you say yes yes the one one additional book that is the um, prototype for Anderson's book is the famous uh, culture of narcissism, Christopher Lash. That book is a companion volume uh, to Anderson's book as well. He really nailed the danger of a culture that grows increasingly narcissistic because it can't see anything else, including its own self 
in a historical context. And that loss of history, I think, is the one of the great dangers, uh, not of, well, yes, of knowing history, but even more so, as one literary critic I read decades ago pointed out, he says, you know, it, it, I'm, not a, I'm not dispirited or uh, disappointed that my students don't know much history. He said, what really terrifies me is that they don't have a sense, they don't have a historical sense that they are in a historical continuity, that there's people that were behind them, and when they pass, there's going to be people in front of them. He says they live in like an eternal present between past and future and kind of numb on both sides. Well, I thought that was worth thinking about. Well, I wonder if that would explain why uh, politicians, for instance, or the oil companies uh, seem to be so short-sighted and don't plan for tomorrow. Or maybe it's yes. like the end of timers, too. You know, it's, it's as yes. if they aren't worried about future generations. It's only the now. That's right. That's right. Someone, or maybe I read it, pointed out um, – uh, it was a Japanese uh, critic who said, "You know what separates the Japanese from the Ameri- the from Western uh, consciousness? Western consciousness looks five years out. We look fifty to seventy-five years out, mm-hmm. and then we make our decisions based on that. It's it's um, riffing off of what you just said, but you're right. That narrow window mentality." With the idea that, well, if things go to hell in a handbasket, I'll I'll be long dead. Not yeah. thinking about one's grandchildren or you know the the continuity. Right. And so it's grab on to what can benefit me right now, and let the rest go. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a it's a virtue of selfishness. Well, I, I want to ask you a little bit about religion before you go. Um, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I have a ten- tendency to lay a lot of blame at the foot of patriarchal religions. Um, okay. But I can't help but wonder if religion doesn't prom- promote fantasy thinking. Now, you know, I'll admit, I am a, I am a fan of Bill Moore, and Bill Moore is always talking about, oh, yeah. and, you know, and I, and, <laughs> I, and I don't consider myself um, an atheist, you know, I, I, I really don't, yeah. uh, even though, you know, he is an atheist. And, you know, and I don't consider it anti-intellectual to have a religion or to have a, a spirituality. But I do wonder about a religion that, um, you, know, you know, religions that demand people not think, uh, that not have, you know, uh, I, I mean, there's so many cognitive disconnects with so many of these religions, and I can't yes. help but wonder if that's, you know, the arc, you know, uh, yes. evolution, um, you know, all of these, you know, the virgin birth, you know, all of these different things, does that, um, it, you know, does that sort of lay the groundwork for, for fantasy thinking? Oh, I think it can, and I wrestle with that as a Roman Catholic, a still a practicing Roman Catholic, uh, even to the point that I'm an oblate, 
with the Benedictine order up in Big Sur at the um, New Camaldoli Hermitage, I would have dropped out of the Catholic Church, in fact did, many years ago because it was so unsatisfying and it was so formulaic. And the only reason I'm a Catholic today is because of the monastic wing of the Catholic Church. The, the monastic tradition of Catholicism is a completely different animal, a completely different, a largely different animal than the Sunday um, uh, urban uh, church service. And something was too pat, too non-thinking, and I realized, you know, the church is trying to do all the work for me and not allowing me to take responsibility for my own faith. But the monastic tradition doesn't do that. So that's how I <laughs> saved my, save myself it. and stuck with it yeah. because it, the monastic tradition sidesteps that what you had just uh, very nicely uh, expressed about um, control. And all, you know, the church is so interesting and what a huge turn it took in the Middle Ages from being open, from accepting gods and goddesses from other religions. It had no trouble with that until, and I don't know what the psyche of the church was, that they decided they wanted more control over people's thinking. So dogma replaced that nitty-gritty dark night of the soul wrestling with mm-hmm. right and wrong. And, you know, I've, I've got to take um, responsibility for myself. And created, created far too many sheep right. who just followed right. and cheated them from the existential challenge of making their faith truly organic, I think I want to say, rather mechanistic. Yeah. Right, right, I get that. Very interesting shift. Very interesting Um, shift. And and I wonder, did, um, and I know we're running short on time here, but real quick, uh, did um, Anderson uh, speak much about the corporate-owned media? Yes, but not, let me think, not a lot. He didn't go into the corporatocracy, um, although his his um, exploration of Disneyland, of, um, fa- yeah, so, so organizations that were created, uh, even themed restaurants, you know, when, when restaurants were restaurants and then they became uh, Long John Silver and Bonanza. And so, so <laughs> theme, theme kind of took over and that's corporate. So, yes. Las maybe in, Vegas, in, uh, too. Think of Las Vegas. And it's Vegas. Uh, Disneyland yeah. and Vegas, you know, came, came about around the same time. For your listeners, one of the fascinating uh, gifts that Anderson's book gives us is he makes all these connections between things that I'm going to speak for myself. 
I had no idea popped up at the same time. And yeah. then yeah. an image starts to form about, oh, now we can see something of a new myth taking hold here. Um, and that, for that alone, the book's worth reading. And I, I want to say to your audience, I get no commission. Um, Well, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, because I certainly know I loved going to Las Vegas and uh, I loved going to the Luxor and imagining that I was actually in Egypt and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, you you think it's, you know, you think it's maybe harmless escapism, but maybe it's sort of, um, you know, uh, sowing the seeds to for these, you know, this other more negative dark side of what we've been talking about. Yes. Well, at the beginning of uh, Steve Stevenson's Bonds book on living myth, he, and I'll be very brief here, he lays out Jung's three kinds of thinking, fantasy thinking, directed thinking, and symbolic thinking. And your last remark reminded me of that. The danger is to get caught in too much facticity, quantification, which is directed thinking, or get caught into fantasy thinking, which let's say somebody goes to Vegas and they've got this chip that they've had at home and they believe this is the good luck uh, talisman and they're going to win big. And then the symbolic thinking that understands the playfulness of that chip but understands the reality of what's going to happen in Vegas. That is, you're going to go home with less money, by and large, than you went with. When symbolic thinking gets lost, one moves in the way that you were just describing it, into fantasy or into this hard-nosed, mathematical, and I think the DACA argument uh, is a good example of these push poles. Yeah. Well, and and last uh, comment on this. You know, you made me think about. Uh, you know, on TV now. You know, it's like the ancient alien stuff. It's almost become a yes. secular religion. You know, and 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 to be honest with you, I don't know what I think about all of it. You know, sometimes some of the things they bring up really make me scratch my head. And I know there's all of these yes. out of place artifacts, and I know academia tends to be difficult to open its mind sometime and embrace new thought because it might upset the apple cart uh, yes. of how we think That's things right. were. Um, but it, it, uh, you know, it, it, it just, um, yeah, I mean, you can see more and more that, um, there, there, that, that we are, I guess somebody might call it open-minded, <laughs> yes. um, you know, that we're, that we're willing yes. to almost believe, believe anything. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, the one of the paradoxes that Anderson points out towards the end of the book is in America, we have reached a point where we believe everything and we believe nothing. And we're caught in that uh, paradox. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I yes. think so. But, and I and I and I have to admit in all honesty, sometimes I feel like I'm right there. You know, uh, yes. I'm I'm right there 
Uh, I mean, you brought up Rachel Maddow. I mean, I used to love Rachel Maddow. You know, <laughs> I would watch yeah. her religiously, religiously every night. And then when I saw how MSNBC and her in particular treated Bernie Sanders, I was done with her. You know, oh, and I okay. get, and I guess yeah. I just started to think, you know what? So she's a, she's a tool. You know, she's a tool of of you know she she wasn't an unbiased. Uh, uh, you know, actor. No. She, you know, no. you know, she, and That's and right. uh, you know, so maybe it was my naivete to begin with to think that she was above it all. You know, um, yes. But yeah, you just you just get to the point where uh, you know you're you're disillusioned. You know, you're disillusioned yes. when your heroes or heroines fall off the pedestal too. <laughs> yes. So can I end with a plea to you? Give, yes. give her another chance. Give her another chance. <laughs> I just I'll think, think about it. it. You know that she is too, but yeah. But I understand the disillusionment piece. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not making an excuse for her, but I think in the business, there has to be some uh, compromise, wiggle room, going, bending, oneself, you know, over to what's required in order to stay on the air? I don't know. Yes, yes. No, you're right, and I realize that. You know, I I do realize that because look at all the people MSNBC kicked to the curb, you know. Uh, Yes, And and maybe she figures – and look, I don't really know what her politics are, you know, obviously, but – uh, maybe she believes she was better off keeping her job. Maybe she could do more good if she kept her job yes. than if she, you know, fought management and end up like Keith Oberman, you know. Um, exactly. So. Exactly. Anyway. Yes. Um, well, Dennis, this and has Karen, been fun. So and it's great. The, the time no, has I've flown. It. <laughs> I can't um, and, and I'm sure Karen, there was. Yeah, we've yeah. we've talked an hour and uh, fifteen minutes here, um, so I know Great. you have to run. Um, is there any anything um, you know that you feel like you wanted to say that we didn't say that was important, or do you feel like you covered it well enough? You know, given the time that you and I had, and given the enormity of this guy's book, I mean, it's dense. It's very readable, but it's dense. I feel real good about what I. Excuse me. From my notes, I got out on the table. So okay. uh, there's a thousand things that I didn't say, but um, we weren't on the air for f- three weeks either. So no, I feel very <laughs> okay. good about how it went. <laughs> okay. And I, I so, so thank it, you for inviting me. Oh well, it's been fun, and you know you're welcome back any time. Uh, from from your thank bio, you. there's tons tons of stuff we could talk about. Um, and oh, you know yes, maybe we'll talk yes. a, we'll talk about that off the air and and schedule uh, you know schedule an, an, another interview on on a different topic. Um, so d- my final question: Does Kurt um, offer any suggestions for fixing this, or is he just identifying the problem? He's identifying the problem, and then towards the end he says, you know, maybe it's peaking. He says we can only hope. But he says this aberrant period in our history may, um, and I, I tend to agree with him. I mean, there's no way that we'll make four, we'll uh, survive four years 
of the current uh, setup. Um, but he he feels hopeful. Here's what he says right at the end of the book. These last decades may turn out to have been a phase, one strange act of our ongoing epic, an unfortunate episode in the American experiment that we will finally move past and chalk up to experience. Nations and societies have survived and recovered from far more terrible swerves, eras that felt cataclysmic as they were happening. The good news, in other words, is that America may now be at the peak of fantasy land, and his last three words in the book are, we can hope. <laughs> so we can hope. I'm going to hope, hope. hope with him. Yes, we all need okay. to hope. <laughs> okay. Um, well, All you know, right, that we talk about we talk about the paradigm shift, you know, and you you wonder yes. if this huge huge shakeup um, isn't somehow um, you know part of the cosmic plan to you know allow us to um, you know I don't know to think differently. But who knows? I, I don't. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, well, well, Dennis, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you you were about to say something. Go ahead. I'll give you the last word here. Well, yeah. Um, oh heck, you said something right there, right at the end uh, about oh, the paradigm yeah, shift. I, yes, I am hopeful because the. Congress, the political machine in Washington, D.C., had atrophied. It had become paralyzed uh, by its own doing. Trump has come in and broken everything up. And on that level, I am glad for him because he has allowed the parts of this old myth that are the shelf life was expired long ago to break it down so that something else has a chance to form. And one of the ways that I think that's happening is that all of the women stepping forward in uh-huh. the Me Too movement, and they're, uh-huh. they're out there the annual uh, anniversary of uh, the first year of Trump uh, demonstrating right. all over the world. So, see, I think there's a new myth pushing itself up, and I think Trump is helping it along willy-nilly what he thinks yeah. he's doing. Yeah, so a catalyst, that's, that's a catalyst. Yeah. A catalyst. Yeah, cause, yeah because because I, I thought I I thought if Hillary got elected, everything would just go back to the way it was and there wouldn't really have been much hope for change. Um so I agree. he you know, it things would with him things will get so bad that things things have to shift, you know. They have um to shift. you know, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Well, well okay, Dennis Sharon, again, this was great. Thank you. Yes, thank thank you so much. And uh, you know, like I, we'll we'll talk about having you come back. And good night. Okay. Okay. All right. Good night. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, well, I sure thank um, Dennis uh, for coming on tonight. I really love that conversation. And if you uh, want to know more about uh, Kurt uh, Anderson and um, you maybe don't want to read that big book, he is on a website called Big Think. And uh, he actually has these small little short snippets of videos 
that talk about some of these uh, individual subjects related to this, um, you know, how America went haywire idea. So go to the Big Think, and um, and you can find him there. And there's, of, of course, a lot of other great subjects that will pique your curiosity and, um, you know, get your juices flowing and, uh, and make you think as well. Um, great stuff, actually. And, um, and again, thanks to Dennis Slattery for a wonderful show tonight. Um, so before I go, um, I just want to read you a review about Joe Carson's new book, Celebrate Wildness. Um, this review was written by Dana Corby in her blog, The Rant and Raven. And Dana says about Celebrate Wildness, uh, she says, when people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is feriferia. Feriferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other. Based on Fred's visions of the divine feminine, the sacredness of Eros, and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything, it also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy faith. Fred intended that Feriferia should lead the world into a paradisal future in which freedom, eros, and play are the core values, where that built by human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fae romp among us. Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness, a wistfulness for the idealist I was. We all were back when we and the world and the magic were all young and French, fresh. <laughs> when, uh, uh, though it's a short book at only 115 art-laden pages, don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time, let it sink into your subconscious, and you know what? What bobs to the surface will be wondrous. Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper. It's available for $45 from feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A.org. Uh, well, thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in uh, with me tonight. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, got some other great stuff uh, coming up for you uh, in February. I will not be with you next Wednesday because I am on vacation. So uh, please go to the archives and find uh, some good stuff that maybe you have not had a chance to listen to before. Uh, that about does it uh, for me tonight. And I uh, hope you have uh, a wonderful weekend. And uh, as I close tonight's show, um, I will let you hear a word from Laura Perry. The Minoans of ancient Crete, an egalitarian society where women were honored, where the sacred feminine was revered, where peace and prosperity reigned for centuries. Hi, I'm Laura Perry, and I'd love to help bring the ancient Minoans to life for you. Explore Minoan spirituality with my books, Labyrinth and Horns, and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book. And discover the wonders of divination with the Minoan Tarot. 
You'll find all these at Amazon and other good online and local bookstores. Find out more on my website, lauraperryauthor.com.